We got some in the parking lot today? Give me a honk if you're out there. All right. Praise God. So uh, you're in the margin seats or in the, the extra high, what is the top of the stadium seating? The cheap seats? But not in the cheap seats in our hearts. We love it any way you can join us. If you're joining us in a car or in a building or online, any which way you can be a part of this fellowship, we welcome that. So if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here, and we are continuing on in our series in Acts this morning. So I'm going to preach a little bit different. I'm going to let Luke be our preacher for the bigger part of this sermon. So I'll explain more about that as we get to it. But uh, just a quick recap of where we were last week. We looked at information that the Holy Spirit had given and it had been interpreted in different ways. From Acts 20:22, 20, it says, Now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Those are Paul's words. And then seems to be contradictory information that other disciples are given. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And then this prophet comes and says, The Holy Spirit says in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. So Luke is very clear. Everyone here is acting in the Spirit or from the Holy Spirit. And yet their interpretation of how they should be moving forward, it's different. So Paul's desire, the desire 21.4b of the disciples at Tyre, the prophet Agabus, Paul's traveling companions who he's with, they're all acting from a place of listening to the Holy Spirit. The difference is in interpretation. And Paul, as we talked about, he's no longer operating from a narrative of self-preservation. That's not his primary thought. His primary motive now has become faithfulness to the mission of God. So I thought that was an important lesson for us because a lot of times we're very quick to make judgments about who is listening to the Spirit and who is not. And curiously, the ones who are not listening to the Spirit tend to be the ones who disagree with me. And I said, you know, I thought that was a coincidence, but uh, in this case, the Holy Spirit tells everyone about this dangerous situation of Paul going out there. Out of love for Paul, they want to protect him. Out of love for the Lord, Paul is willing to walk into danger. All of these actions are coming from a place of love. So the biblical narrative, I think it does show us in in a number of ways and on different occasions how we can have different interpretations of the best way to follow the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is working with all of us. And in the end, the people who love Paul, they have to surrender him to the will of the Lord. Hey, may God's will be done when Paul would not be dissuaded. So Paul and his traveling companions, they arrive in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem church rejoices in this news of this this wild success of the Gentile mission. And uh, this is visually represented uh, represented by all of these Gentile Christians who have accompanied Paul. A lot of different congregations represented. They're all bringing this gift of this collection 
I think, that they gathered and they're presenting it to uh, the Jerusalem church. Remember, Paul's drive was to get there by the day of Pentecost uh, to, to celebrate the wonder of that event and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that has now flipped uh, cities in the Roman Empire on their ear and things are going in a completely different direction. It's just the power of the Holy Spirit being poured out throughout the world in this, as faith in Jesus Christ spreads. But the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, they're not unaware of the controversy surrounded Paul, surrounding Paul. Paul had shaken things up, and they're, they're aware of this, so they come up with a special plan to try to protect Paul. It says, they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who, are live, who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circum, circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So the lie that had been circulating was basically that Paul was teaching Jews not to be Jews anymore. Uh, you, you, you can't be Jewish to be a follower of Jesus. And this wasn't true at all. What Paul had been teaching was that Gentiles do not ta- need to take on the full uh, weight or burden of the Jewish law in order to become a disciple of Jesus. They don't have to take on all of the weight of Judaism first before they can follow Jesus. But nowhere was it being taught that you cannot be a Jew if you are a Christian. Paul himself continued to live as a Jew and participate in Jewish festivals and rituals. We just read about it. Uh, The mindset of the early disciples wasn't that Jesus was trying to abolish the law and prophets, but the work of Jesus, the early church very much... Uh, viewed as a work of completion. He's bringing to fruition the fullness in himself of all that God intended through the law and the prophets. Jesus Christ brought completion to the Jewish law. So they said, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Living in obedience to the law. And then they go on to reference the Council of Jerusalem. As for the Gentile believers... We have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. So being in obedience to the law, there is nothing incompatible in that to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can be a Messianic Jew, and in fact, I would argue that... uh, a lot of things from the Jewish heritage would add to and provide insights to the richness and wonder of what God is doing through Jesus Christ. Um, but then they mention these recommendations given to the Gentile believers from Acts 15. This was this was this short little list that they said, uh, Gentile Christians, these are things that we think would be good for you to do. 
And it amazed everyone just how short that list was. And it seems like an odd list, but we talked about that uh, months past, um, that all of these things that are mentioned there are things that would be uh, barriers to fellowship between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And by Gentile Christians abstaining from these certain things, they are taking down a wall that would separate them, and they would not offend unnecessarily uh, these people who viewed things differently. And then also this list, all of these things, uh, blood, uh, meats, meat strangled, uh, sacrifice to idols, sexual immorality, those are all things that are explicitly tied to pagan practices of that day. And so really the call to be a disciple of Christ is a call to come out of We are called, all of us, to step out of the filth of our culture around us because the call to us is to become a kingdom of priests. We are set apart and special for the purposes of God to live the life of Jesus among us. Okay. So now we're going to just move things along a little bit quicker here. The next day, Paul took the men with him and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice to the date of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So earlier in this chapter, we saw Paul's stubbornness. He would not be dissuaded He was stubborn about getting to Jerusalem. And he was stubborn about this because it was part of his missionary call and it was a burden that the Holy Spirit had given to him. But notice now he's in submission to these elders in Jerusalem. He does what they ask without hesitation. And uh, so it wasn't just that Paul had a hard heart. He had a heart that was set on the Lord, which determined the steps and his actions of his life. Well, now in Luke's narrative, things really pick up speed. And so, uh, just as Paul is about to be arrested and swept along uh, by rapid events that are taking place, now I'm just going to let the text be our guide. And I'm going to get a large amount of scripture out there before you. Now, maybe a good preacher would not preach this way or do this, but uh, I'm not worried about being a good preacher. So we're just going to jump into this and uh, get this story before us. So this is starting in Acts 21, verse 27. And then after all of this story is in in our mind, we're going to come back to it, and I'm going to bring some observations to the table for, for your consideration. And then we'll be done for the day. I probably should have gotten a water bottle. But I think you'll notice just how quickly the narrative tends to move along. And so I'm reading this big chunk because I think to stop and comment on it would lose some of the literary integrity and the intention of Luke when he put this together. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple And they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. 
And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to to the crowd. And when the rioters saw that the commander and his soldiers were there, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers, and the crowd that followed kept shouting, Away with him! As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. And having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motion to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city. Thanks, brother. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem in order to be punished. About noon, noon as I came near Damascus, Suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. And my companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. 
My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance, the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this, and then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Wow, can you feel? I maybe didn't do it justice in my reading, but could you feel something about the speed and the intensity of what Luke was inviting us to experience? He's inviting us in to that event that was taking place in Jerusalem. And I know that was a whole lot of scripture coming at you at one time, but me trying to comment on the, this story as it unfolded, it, it would have slowed us down and taken away from the integrity of Luke, what Luke wanted us to feel and experience. But now we can catch our breath just for a moment, and I want to make some observations about all of that that just ran right past us really quickly. First, I would say it seems like the Jerusalem elders, they had a good plan to try to protect Paul but they greatly underestimated the animosity and the hostility these Jews living in other parts of the world felt toward Paul. Uh, they're not even reasonable anymore. It's just this intense hatred that keeps them from being able to listen, that keeps them from being able to hear reason. So the events that follow may have been a surprise to Paul, they may have been a surprise to the Jerusalem elders, but everything that's taking place here, this was not a surprise to the Holy Spirit. And in fact, I would argue the Holy Spirit orchestrated this entire event. Second, sorry, second, in Paul, the Holy Spirit has found the right guy for this moment the right guy for this moment. Who else but Paul could have handled a situation like this? 
You see, Paul was a Roman citizen from Tarsus. He is able to speak Greek, which surprises this commander who is trying to figure out what's going on. And then Paul speaks to him in his own language. And then he, the commander is like, you must be that Egyptian terrorist who did da-da-da-da. <laughs> and Paul says, no, I'm, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, a citizen of no ordinary city. And he's able to ask permission. He has the tools necessary to be able to get this platform to speak to the people. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing in choosing the right man for the right moment. And then Paul addresses the crowd in Aramaic. See, Paul wasn't just this Greek-speaking Jew. Paul was also a trained Pharisee under Gamaliel. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. And speaking in Aramaic now, he would be recognized as someone who was an insider to the, to the heart of Judaism. And that's why when they hear this language being spoken, everyone gets quiet. Suddenly, because the Holy Spirit has orchestrated all of this, the right man at the right moment in history who has the right skills to be able to get this pulpit to speak to people who want to kill him, to speak to people who were indifferent to him, to speak to people who loved him, He's the right man for this pregnant moment in history to be able to proclaim and honor Jesus Christ. So number three, I would say that Paul's defense that he makes in reply to the accusations that are given, you know, I thought about it. I was like, Paul, that's not much of a defense. Here they are, these people, they want to kill you, and you're kind of giving them a history lesson. Let me rewind this a little bit and tell you a story about what happened to me a long time ago. And I don't know, uh, as an angry mob, is there that the violence is so great you have to be carried away from the beatings that they're giving you because of Roman soldiers? See, Paul had worked on this sermon in his mind for years and years. He knew exactly what he was going to say if the Holy Spirit gave him this chance and gave him this moment. So if I were to make a defense against the accusations that are coming against me, if I were in Paul's shoes, it seems like I would want to prove that I'm a Jew that's still in obedience to the law. And so I would want to get witnesses who would say, you know what, he's actually in obedience to the law. Paul doesn't try to do that at all. And then they had assumed that Trophimus the Ephesian was being brought into and defiling the temple grounds, breaking the, the Jewish law. And Paul makes no attempt to defend on that account either. Because it would be easy to find Trophimus and say, hey, did you go in the temple or not? And people could testify, no, no Greeks went in the temple here. Paul doesn't even try to do that. See, his defense is 
defense is no longer about protecting himself and looking out for number one. His heart had been so changed by the mission of God that now his one desire, his one question is this, how can I make you look good, Lord Jesus? How can I make Jesus Christ look good? That's how much his heart had changed. And then finally this message, let's look at this message of what, she, what Paul chooses to share. In that special moment with the opportunity that he had been given, uh, he could have chosen to say anything in that moment. He could have shared anything in that moment. But the one thing that Paul chooses to proclaim is how Jesus Christ had come and met him at the point of his greatest need, his greatest brokenness, and his greatest shame. That is the story that he wants to share with the entire world. Look what Jesus did to save me. See, in the past, this had been his point of greatest pride. His zeal for the Lord, which was so strong, he was arresting Christians and, and dragging them off to be thrown in prison, men and women. It was his zeal for the Lord that led him there. But now that was his greatest shame. Paul's greatest zeal had become his greatest shame. And now his greatest shame, it's become his greatest testimony to the goodness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in his goodness, he performs a twofold miracle on Paul. You see, he doesn't just heal the blindness of Paul's eyes. He also heals the blindness of Paul's heart. So naturally, that would lead us to a question we need to ask ourselves in self-examination. What are things you have gloried in that you're now ashamed of? It could be something you thought in ignorance. It could be um, a reputation, uh, your own self-righteousness. And we all have things like this, that over time with the Lord working on our heart, the things that we stood that's so proud about, that pride is gone. And now, because we've caught a glimpse of something more sublime, something more beautiful. And we've realized the things that I had taken pride in in this world, in this life, they're nothing but filthy rags. That I'm just a vessel. But the treasure is vouchsafed in my heart through the life of the Holy Spirit in me. So for our lives, my failure, my shame, 
in the hands of Jesus, this can become my testimony. The place of your greatest failure, your greatest pain, your greatest brokenness in the hands of Jesus, these things become our great testimony. When you humble yourself before the Lord and admit your need, admit the blindness of your own heart, suddenly you exchange the filthy rags of your self-righteousness for the glorious raiment of proclaiming the beauty and goodness of Jesus. Your life isn't about you. It becomes one big arrow pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfection. Jesus Christ is the good. Jesus Christ is the beauty. And the Lord, through the miracle that he works inside of us, he turns us, he turns our wounds into something useful for making us healers of those around us. We become wounded healers, bringing life to other people because we've surrendered all to the hands of Jesus Christ. That is the potential of our human life. In your life, when the Holy Spirit gives you those moments, when he gives you a pulpit of some kind, a place to stand and an audience to speak to, are you going to make Jesus look good? That's in the end the one thing that matters. And so I would like to suggest three places that we get tripped up. Some of us, we failed to recognize the place of our greatest need. And the Lord, he continues to, the, he continues to reveal those things to us over time. But we're blind to our own brokenness. We're blind to our own sin. And some of us are stuck in that place for a long time. And so we need Jesus to come and heal our blindness, the blindness of our hearts. Another place we get tripped up. Instead of letting Jesus take our brokenness and shame and using it as our message and a testimony of being real about who we are and our own brokenness and our own our own need for Jesus. We've tried instead to hide our shame, to hide our pain, to hide our brokenness, instead of humbling ourselves and admitting our need for Jesus Christ. And some of us, we've recognized our places of greatest need, at least some of them. It's an ongoing work. And We've, not, we've given up on this game of trying to pretend to be something we're not. Of my own self-righteousness, I've given up on that game. But some of us still have not had the courage, even still, to proclaim our testimony of what Jesus has done in our life. But we have remained silent instead. By his wounds, you are healed and in the hands of Jesus, your wounds become the source of healing for those around you. But you have to be willing to share those wounds with other people. So, um, this is just an aside. We may be thinking, some of us, I, I could never do what Paul is doing. Hey, this just seems inconceivable. But you see how 
the Holy Spirit had been working in a man's life over the course of many years, using the skills and gifts he had so that he was the perfect man to be in that situation, in that moment. It is way beyond coincidence. The Lord had been planning this for this man for decades now probably to be his witness in this place. And I think I could never have that level of faith and that level of courage and that... You see, Paul, he didn't have that level of faith. He didn't have that strength of character. He didn't get it overnight by deciding, you know what, I'm going to give my life to the Lord a little bit more than I have been. But this came through years and years of training And it's the same with us. You see, if we're faithful in small things, if we're faithful in humble things, the Holy Spirit is going to give you places to testify to the goodness of Jesus Christ. I don't know what... the humi- Think about the humility of what this, some of this looks like. Maybe it looks like Maybe it looks like a mother teaching her toddler how to pray. Maybe it looks like having the courage to invite a coworker to come here to church such as we're able to meet. Maybe maybe it's the courage built up inside. For those of us who have adult children who are not coming and being faithful to the Lord, maybe don't know the Lord like we would like them to know the Lord, being able to speak into that situation. You know what? These things matter. And I know I haven't got it right with all of this, but Jesus Christ is perfect and he's beautiful and he loves you more than I love you. It, I don't know what the humility of these little opportunities is going to look like for us. But I guarantee each of us are find, are having them. I know that. The question is, will you put in a good word for Jesus? Will you put in a good word for Jesus? And Paul's faithfulness in the Gentile mission, it promoted him to this opportunity in Jerusalem. Paul's faith in Jerusalem, we're about to see, is about to promote him to going to Rome to testify in front of the emperor of the known world itself. So he's just, we're faithful in small things that leads to other things that we can be faithful in. And those habits of faithfulness grow. It just gets inside of us. I can't help but talking about how good Jesus Christ has been to me because he's changed my life. And as we learn to share those words of our testimony, we get these other places to stand and share that. And we're not going to get it right out of the gate all the time. It's uncomfortable. We're going to make mistakes doing it. Sometimes it's just going to seem it doesn't fit right. It sounds like I'm trying to be coercive. I'm trying to... But many of us stay in that place where we just make excuses for years and years instead of using the little pulpits that we're given for the little sermons that we have, just being able to say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God.
And let me tell you about how he's been good to me. And as we're faithful in small things, we're given bigger things. You know what? And people are going to say, Calvin, that sounds like works righteousness. What are you talking about there? I'm not talking about works righteousness. As anyone knows, when you actually step into this and live this, faithfulness begets more faithfulness. See, it's not just sin that grows on compound interest. Righteousness also grows on compound interest. So that we get in and we're faithful with small things, we're given bigger things, and we're given other things, and that faithfulness grow. And when you're actually living that in a process of discipleship, you realize this isn't about works anymore. You realize every bit of this that comes to you and every opportunity you are given to make Jesus look, to make Jesus look beautiful, all of that is grace. It's all grace. It's grace that I get to be here and even have a room of people that I get to share this with to say, you know what? Jesus Christ is worth it. You know what? Jesus desires you to live your life in a way that honors Him. It's grace that I get to do. It's grace that you would get to hear this. It's grace if some of these ideas get put in your heart that you're willing to share and take a risk when maybe you haven't taken a risk for Jesus Christ in a long time. In the end, it's all grace. It's all grace that we're given. A writer that I like, Henry Nouwen, he just speaks to issues of the heart. And I, I, held, I held it against him for a long time that he's a Catholic priest. He was... But he speaks to true matters of the heart that I find beauty there. I just want to share one quote that he gave to close this morning. Our glory, it's hidden in our pain. If we allow God to bring the gift of himself into our experience of it. Paul could have preached anything. Instead of choosing anything else, he chose the place of his greatest failure and his greatest shame, which be the Lord in the hands of Jesus, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, became his greatest testimony that he shares. And I think that's something we're invited to as well. I think we're invited to that as well. And it all begins with the humble steps of our real life and the opportunities that are already really there around us that maybe we, just, we need new eyes to see, new ears to hear, and a new heart to perceive the opportunities that the Lord gives us. So those are things that I pulled out of that text with the Lord's help. It just Paul is being rushed away in madness. But Paul's character had been so formed in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ that when the Spirit gives him this opportunity to proclaim the goodness of Jesus, Paul doesn't falter, Paul doesn't fail. He had trained himself through years of hardship and obedience. 
So Lord, just bless us as a church as we're trying to figure out how to do this. Lord, just work in our own hearts that we can have the humility to see those opportunities that you give to us. And let us put in a good word for you, Jesus, to proclaim your holiness around us. And not everyone's going to like our message. Not everyone's going to listen. People will be angry about it. People will be indifferent. Don't let us hold back because we're afraid. Don't let us hold back because it's uncomfortable. But in the humility of the opportunities to preach that you give us in our home, in our environments with the people that we're able to rub elbows with, Lord, teach us faithfulness. Teach us how to put in a good word for you in a way that just makes you look attractive and lets people know of the beauty of who you are and lets people know how you've done a miracle in our own hearts to change our lives, to open us from this place of brokenness and resistance and self-will to a place where our hearts are soft and where our hearts just become one big yes to you, Lord. Holy Spirit, work that in our lives. Give us this kind of vision that we can be this to each other, that we can put in a good word for Jesus everywhere we go. And I thank you for examples like Paul, who was the perfect man at this perfect moment, because you have brought that perfection out in him. Go with us this day as we continue in our worship, and thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I think Ron has a song for us.